Heavenly Father, as we, um, as we come to your word, I pray that it would be worshipful for us. It would be an act of worship. Worship is, is, is not contained and uh, quarantined to singing, Father. Worship can be all of life as we live it before you. And no doubt hearing your word read is worship. Uh, responding to your word in, in, in the way we live is worship. And considering your word deeply as it comes and confronts us, encourages us, challenges us is worship. And so would you grant us the grace to come before your word uh, with curiosity and with interest and with humility, with bent knees and open hearts and tender minds. Above all things, what we need today, though, is we need to look at Jesus. And so would your word ultimately drive us to Christ, our one true hero? There's things in this text that are going to confront us and challenge us, uh, hopefully affirm and confirm some things too. But above all things, what we need is to see Jesus. And so we ask that he would be the loudest aspect of this service in our songs, uh, in our preaching, in our prayers, in communion, and even in our benediction. What we want most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The word love is used, uh, I think it's 47 times or 46 times in five chapters in 1 John, and it's almost exclusively used really positively, love for God. If we love God, then we'll love others, God's love for us. And there's one use in 1 John that's actually negative. We're actually told not to love something. It's what we're going to look at today. Instead of being told to love something, we're told not to love something, specifically this. Let me give you the, let me give you the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, on one hand, it's really clear. Do not love the world or the things in the world, but it's also really misunderstood and misapplied. Uh, one of my favorite books that uh, I've read over the last number of years is a book by Joe Rigney called The Things of the Earth, and the subtitle is something like Treasuring Christ by Treasuring His Gifts, basically a book about enjoying your stuff. Uh, a number of years ago, we did a series on Jesus and money, and there's a whole sermon devoted to like just enjoy your stuff, and yet we come to a text like this that says, do not love the world or the things in the world, and in Rigney's book, I think he captures what a lot of us probably feel when it comes to a Christian's relationship with the world and the things of the world. He says it like this. He says, this book was written to answer a simple question. What are we to do with the things of earth? Embrace them, reject them, use them, forget about them, set our affections on them, look at them with a suspicious eye, enjoy them, with a twinge or two of guilt? There's a ton of other questions we could ask, but, I, but, but in short, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how should a Christian relate to the world. And to answer that, we'll look at three different things from this text. We're going we're gonna to unpack, we're going to have to start with unpacking the complexity of the text. And one way it's clear and one way it's really complex. We're going we're gonna to try to receive the kindness of this command, and we're going to end with looking at really the urgency or poignancy of this command. So if you are able, uh, wherever you are, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is God's liberating, freeing, directional Word. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Feel free to to grab a, a seat. Let's just start with the complexity of this, some confusing stuff. If you know anything about who wrote 1 John, you probably know the author. John um, says, do not love the world. But he also wrote some other books in the New Testament. One of them is the Gospel of John. And there he records the, the words of Christ that say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the one who's saying do not love the world is also the one who wrote, God loves the world. What's going on? One of the things that we have to understand when we come across this really important word in this text is world is used differently in different parts of the Bible. One of the things you could do is maybe think about it as two different realms. We actually see world used multiple times in 1 John. I would encourage you to read the rest of the the letter to see how it's used. But these two different realms in the use of world, we could say world with God or the world without God. The world for God, the world against God, the world as it glorifies God or the world that denies God. The world is the collection of people that need to be saved that God so loves or the world is a system that it's set against God. One we're supposed to love, one we are told to stop loving. Maybe the simplest way of thinking about this is the world versus worldliness. The world versus worldliness. We can love the world, but not worldliness. Why is it? Because there's different goals. There's different allegiances, different devotion, different mission. I love the way Joel Beakey, I'm going to quote this guy twice. I don't know how to say his name. So one time I'll say Joel Beakey and one time I will say Joel Beak. But Joel Beakey says it this way. He says, the goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. Worldliness is human nature without God. Joel Beek says it like this. He says, worldliness is human activity without God. Gives you some sense of the the way in which we're not to love the world. We're not to love the creation and the things in creation as if this is it. We're not to live our lives as if this is it. And if we do, this text says the love of the Father, it's not in Him. we're, We're not loving God because we're saying God doesn't even exist by living this way. This text is a clarion call for us to resist in the strongest words possible a worldly existence, but it is not a proof text for asceticism. This is not a text how it can sometimes be used is to, to think creation somehow is bad, that, that somehow the physical world is, is wicked and evil and there's nothing good about it and we want to stay away from it as much as we possibly can. And, and well-meaning Christians over the history of the church have sometimes taken a text like this and said, enjoying anything in the world is somehow wicked and bad. 
But this text is not that. It's not a joy crusher. It is not a creation denier. And this is really important to say before we really apply this text into some negative ways that we might be enjoying the world. Um, Part of it is this. I wrote most of this sermon drinking an amazing cappuccino in 80-degree sunshine with fresh air on my face. And I enjoyed it to no end. So I really hope that somehow I wasn't breaking this command to not love the world as I sipped a cappuccino. Um, Anthony and Celeste Anthony is filming. Right now I'm literally looking at Anthony right now behind the lens of the screen. And he came in about an hour ago to set up and he's like, I I got a new Jeep. And so he comes in with the biggest grin. I said, dude, let me go see it. I go out into the church parking lot and there's this beautiful red Jeep. It is tricked out. It is amazing. It's lifted. It's, It's just absolutely and I said, dude, are you enjoying it? And he says, man, it was great. I, Celeste and I, we dropped off a meal for, for the Cunninghams who just came on to staff and, and we're driving back from Linden and we're going down the guide and the, the top of the, the Jeep is off and we just got the wind and he's got that COVID hair so it's gotten longer so I can see it flapping. And he's just smiling, wouldn't it be dead? So then I said, oh, dude, you're gonna hate today's text. Guess what? Do not love the world or the things of the world. It's terrible. We get to enjoy the world. There is a way, there's an appropriate way to enjoy the world. So I'm going to front load some quotes. I'm just going to read them one after another after another. And you got to hold on to these as we move forward, okay? You got to hold on to these. G.I. Packer. Pleasure is designed to raise our sense of God's goodness, deepen our gratitude to Him, and strengthen our hope of richer pleasures to come. Joe Rigney, I'm going to, the next four from Joe Rigney, from his book, The Things of the Earth. Strongly, strongly encourage you to read it. God's love for God led him to create the world from nothing. Therefore, our love for God, if it is to be an accurate reflection of God's love, must also lead us to a deep and profound and fitting love for creation. It is entirely appropriate when confronted with, a tremend- with tremendous gifts to periodically compare love for the gifts and love for the giver. It's good to be reminded that love for the giver, God, is ultimate. But then once the supremacy of the giver is settled, the right and fitting response is to dive back into the pumpkin crunch cake and enjoy every last bite. Again, Joe Rigney says this, we need not necessarily fear the intensity of our joy in created things. Provided we are anchored in a supreme love for God then, when our love for one of his gifts shoots to the roof like a rocket, it carries our love for God along with it, lifting it to new unforeseen heights. In this sense, we rob ourselves of potent worship if we detach from the gifts or rush through the enjoyment of creation. One more. Sometimes a pleasure is just a pleasure. Period. Full stop. God is honored by your enjoyment of it, your gratitude for it, and its fruitfulness in your life for the sake of the kingdom. So just receive the gift as one of the pleasures at His right hand. You heard it in in these quotes. It's it's enjoying creation in light of the Creator. The, the, The warning here in John is enjoying creation and denying the Creator. Don't lose the point of these quotes as we move forward because this is literally what the text is saying in verse 15. It's saying, stop loving the world. 
and the things of the world. It's an ongoing activity. Just stop doing it. And the idea is writing to Christians, and, and, and somehow they were being co-opted in the way they were living, that they were beginning to deny that there's any future. They were beginning to deny that there's a career. They are beginning to get too swept up in some way, which we'll see in verse 16, into a love for the world that was beginning to distort or shrink their love for God. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible. It can be really helpful when you have like a literal translation that's trying to stay really close to the original language like the ESV um, that we preach out of regularly. But you go and you look at that and you put something like the message which kind of amplifies and summarizes and tries to contemporize the language a bit. And I think it gets to the sense of what's going on here pretty well. The message says it like this, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world, it squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. John's warnings in verse 15 is a warning against um, divided or disordered uh, affections or allegiances. It's becoming more committed to the world than the one that made the world. Ray Van Nest in a commentary on this, this portion of Scripture says it like this, just starkly. One cannot love the world and love the Father at the same time. For the world is at odds with the Father. One must choose. One must take a side. And because of who God is, proper love for Him can brook no rivals. True love for God must place Him supreme in one's affection. Obviously, people who love God ought not to be attracted to the things that arise from opposition to God and thus to them. John is saying in part, do not love the sin that seeks to destroy you. Now again, remember, keep putting in this type of world. This is, this is humanity without God. This is a, a world without a creator. That's, that's what's being warned against here, and it's saying the love of the Father is not in him, if that's what you're doing. And we have this, this really important word as we go into this. So I'm going to give you kind of some, some cautions and handles to, to see like where this love of the world, this corrupted love of the world might be working out, but a really key term comes three different times. It's this word desire. This word desire that works out multiple times in verse 16. And the word desire can mean to lust, uh, to, to crave. I heard one translation, I think it's a really good one, to over-desire. Desire is not necessarily the problem, it's, but it's, it's when it's applied to the wrong thing or it's applied to the right thing with the wrong amplitude, it can become very toxic to us. John Calvin says it like this. He says, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but that we want it too much. It's probably one of the most helpful insights I think I've ever realized that, that often it's actually the good things that are actually the sneakiest things because the good things that we rightly desire, sometimes we begin to over-desire them. Sometimes we begin to lust or crave after them more than, than we do the God who is the giver of those, those gifts. In this text, we see three different categories work out of kind of over-desire. We see the over-desire of the, the flesh, the over-desire of the eyes, and the over-desire of, of 
uh, the pride of life or, or possessions. We'll take each of them kind of briefly to unpack. Um, the over-desire of the flesh, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the over-desires of the flesh, and the over-desires of the eye, and the over-desires of the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Um, over-desire of the flesh, maybe anything, we could say it like this, anything you desire over God or in conflict with God. It's the things our, our bodies crave that are ultimately harmful for our souls. It can be inherently bad things, things that we might lust for, but it's not only limited to that, which actually makes it sneakier. It's anything, often very good things, that we stuff ourselves with that don't make room for God, that curb and reduce our appetite for God that push God into the margins or, or lead us to compromise truth according to His Word or break commands or basically to sideline God. One, one of the things I, I've done over the last couple of years, started probably a few years ago, um, I started doing this intermittent fasting thing and uh, not recommending it to anybody. I, I'm for sure not a medical doctor. Take this with all the cautions you want. But I just decided I was going to try to lose a little weight and get in shape. And um, so I, I, for me, it was just easier. Instead of trying to eat healthy, I just eat less. And so I started doing this intermittent fasting thing. And one of the problems with the one of the challenges is that when, um, so I typically don't eat till, till either later on in the afternoon or something like that, and like three or something, um, that now my body is not conditioned to have breakfast. It's not conditioned to have lunch. And so uh, Paul Cunningham, our new XP, started on Tuesday. And so uh, as elders, we met at Old Town Cafe at eight o'clock and I had a three egg omelet and it was delicious and great and way too much coffee. And then at noon, we did a staff lunch at Uven down in, in Fairhaven and I, um, I got this great like fire oven baked sandwich that was phenomenal, but I was already pretty full. So I ate half of that and I was, I was just afterwards, I was so bloated and so stuffed. And that night my wife brought home pizza and I have glorious pizza, like the most meaty meat pizza you've ever imagined. There's sausage and pepperoni and pounds of bacon on this pizza. I couldn't eat. I just, I was so full. I'm trying to, but I'm just so full. Sometimes the desires of the flesh is this over-desire that gives us a false satisfaction and doesn't leave room for God. Of the desire of the eyes. Now, this isn't totally separate from the desire of the flesh. We could say it like this. Our flesh wants what isn't good for it. Our eyes look upon things that aren't good for us. And in turn, it actually feeds the flesh to keep wanting things that aren't good for it. They, they feed on each other. And what this means is to be taken captive by the appearance of something, is to look at something and say, I really, really want that. I over-desire that. We actually see this in the very first sin of the Bible. God created this incredible paradise. He put Adam and Eve there where he walked with them. He said, you can have everything that's here except that one tree. And what God was doing was not restricting them. He was actually inviting them to a place of flourishing because he knew that if they feasted of this one tree, of this one fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would be broken. But the text tells us that, that Eve saw, she's looking at the tree, in light of all the other stuff that's around that they get to feast on, all the other pleasures, all the other gifts, she looks at the tree and she, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And she desired it. So she took it and she ate. 
number of years ago, um, I don't know, it was probably over 10 years ago, I had three different magazine subscriptions. I had Road and Track, I had uh, Dwell, which is a house magazine, and then I had Sunset, which is kind of like a regional travel, gardening, and sometimes home magazine. I'm probably the only person that would sit there with my car and driver and Sunset together, but that lets you know a little bit about me. One of the things I began to notice, though, after some time, as I'm looking at all these cars and I'm looking at these really nice houses, I'm looking at these really incredible vacations and gardens, is I started to become pretty discontent with my car, which at the time was Colonel Mustard, 1979 Volvo with like 280,000 miles on it with an AM radio. It's a fantastic car, but I started to become pretty discontent pretty discontent with my house, which is a wonderful house that we got to raise our children in when they were young. But I started to dislike my house. And so what I did is I threw all, all the magazines. I recycled all the magazines. I got rid of all of them. I had stacks of them, really enjoyed flipping through. It was super relaxing. But then I began to notice it was corrupting my heart. And so I got rid of them. Now what's hopeful is everyone's got different triggers with this stuff. So for me, that was a trigger. I got rid of them. I said, I just don't want to look at them. It's feeding some desires in my flesh that aren't um, creating capacity and enjoyment of God and the gifts he's given. It's creating covetousness and anger that I don't have other ones. So I got rid of them, but the hopeful thing is I got Apple News Plus now. I got subscriptions to 200 different magazines. I can look at that stuff and it doesn't do the same thing in my heart. It's what I do when I go to the mall. I, when I go to the mall, I just, uh, I remember last time I went to the mall. When I go to the mall, I just know there's parts of the mall, depending on the store that's there and the image there's, they're going to show, that I have to be vigilant before I get there because I know what my eyes are going to want to look at. And so I just walk through the mall with my eyes down. Because the world is saying, look at this. Feast on this. But all it does is corrupt my soul. So over-desire of the eyes. But this last one is the over-desire, I would maybe phrase it like this, of status and stuff. The over-desire of status and stuff. The, the pride of life, the word that's used for life here is not talking about the quality of our lives, it's talking about the stuff of our lives, the material things, which are, again, go back to the earlier quotes, it's not bad to have them, it's, it's just destructive to over-desire them. In many ways, this is basically saying, like, look what I've done. Look what I've accumulated. Look what I've accomplished. Look at all the things I have achieved. I'm, this is what I'm going to boast in with no reference to God. I'll give you an embarrassing example. I was, um, five years ago maybe, um, I was invited, I was asked to become the global training director for Acts 29, the church planning network that we're a part of. Glo- the global training director global. My time, I had every time zone. My field was the world. And I remember as I began to start travel, I began to travel all the time. And so then I started getting upgraded because I'm flying all the time. So now I'm getting upgraded. I'm sitting first class and I'm like watching people walk down to get back and go back with the riffraff back there. Like enjoy your tiny seats as I sit in my leather recliner. Show up at like an Acts 29 conference. And I'd walk in and I felt like I, I, I'm a big deal in this room. It's so sad. It's so sad. Nothing had changed about who I was. The, the value of who I was, what really matters is that I'm a child of God. And yet in that moment, what I was doing, not out loud, I'd be like, oh, golly, shucks, you know. But it's like what was going on in my heart was just wicked. 
There's a pride in my, my status. I know as I studied this text um, this last week, I had a number of gut checks I do right now as I'm preaching it again. Um, and I want to back off of, of, of really examining, but we need to. We need to see where this comes in because it can corrupt us in so many ways. I want to keep asking, like, where am I too worldly? Where is my relationship with the world off? Where is it taking me away from God and living for things that really matter? I'll give you a simple way of testing this. Um, got this from Tim Keller. He said this. He, he said, look at your life and say, how does this look from the standpoint of eternity? So you look at the use of your money. I think that some of these are some of the best ones to test it with. How does my use of money look like from the standpoint of eternity? Like if you struggle to be generous with your funds, and I don't know your financial position, I know everyone's in different spots, but when you look at your life and you look, if you struggle to be generous to kingdom purposes with your money, you're in effect buying into this world as it. So I better get as much and enjoy as much as I can. It's not that you can't. Remember, Anthony and Celeste and their new Jeep. I mean, it's, it's not that you can't enjoy things, but, but, but when you look back in light of eternity, What's it, what's it say? How does this look like from the standpoint of eternity? About your money, about your time, about your ambitions, about your, your gifts, about how you steward what God has put in you. Like, how does it look like in the, from the standpoint of eternity? And the great thing is, like, don't take this all negative. Sometimes examination is to say, like, man, I'm, I am honoring God with my money, and I long to do it more, and I get to enjoy the good things he gives me, and I get to be generous. I get to say no to some things so that I can, I can honor him with my wealth, and I get to say yes to purchasing, you know, nice cappuccinos or a decent car, whatever it is as the Lord provides. But we just want to just ask the question. I can't give you the answer of, like, what's right. One of my kids loves cars, and so I was like, Dad, is there, like, a type of car that just is ungodly? for a Christian to have? I can't answer that for him. I just want to ask this. So like, how will it look like from the standpoint of eternity with no guilt? Realizing that God is generous. He, he gives good gifts for us to enjoy. How's this look like from the standpoint of eternity? I, I uh, read this book called Living Forward last year maybe by Michael Hyde and it's basically about creating a life plan. Really good book. I would, I would encourage it. It's really helpful. And one of the first things that you do with it is you write a eulogy. You basically say, like, what do you want people to say when you die? You're gone. They're gathered. What do you want them to say? And I write this eulogy, and it's so directional. It's saying, okay, if that's what I long for, let me reverse engineer back. And how am I going to build my life towards that? I, I want to go back and rewrite my eulogy saying, how does my eulogy look like in light of eternity? from the standpoint that this world's passing away, but there's a world that's coming that will go on forever. I'll give you a deeper one. I'm not gonna go into this too much. We gotta pick up the pace. And when I say we, I mean me. Um, let me give you a, some, some other questions. This comes from A.W. Tozer. Uh, rules for self-discovery. I'm not even gonna unpack them. I'm just gonna say them and hopefully we can get them out to you in the loop or something. You can take some time and sit with these and say, where it, use them as a barometer. Just to, like, where am I off with this? Where am I not living vertically enough? And where am I just too horizontal? Here's his, here's his rules for self-discovery. What we want most what we think about most, how we use our money, what we do with our leisure time, the company we enjoy, who and what we admire, what we laugh at. There's so many other things we could say. There's so many diagnostic ways. And, and I, I got to keep saying, like, here's the 
here's the trick, is to not end up in this dualistic creation's bad. That's not the trick. I remember I gave to my wife one time uh, a gift. I gave her, I think it was like, I said, here's $500. I want you to go to the mall and I want you to not come back until you spend it all. This made her feel guilty because she thought, well, a good Christian, they're not going to take the money and do that. They're going to take the money and go give it away. I was like, no, 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 I want you to enjoy that gift. So don't answer these questions and look at your life and say, oh, I should feel terrible about everything that I have. That's not what this is supposed to do. And don't be blind to where maybe you're off. God wants to help us with this. He wants to correct some things. We'll go into the kindness of this command in a minute, but here's where I gotta go now, Jesus. I gotta go to Jesus. Before we move on to the kindness of the command, I gotta pause and remind us of grace. I gotta remind us of, of grace. When you're, when you're going through a book of the Bible like this, something that's really helpful to remember, it's a letter. The whole thing is meant to be read. As we camp out in little sections, we don't wanna forget what's come before. And so as we come to a text, it's like, do I really love the Father? Am I loving the world too much? Am, am I experiencing conviction for these things? Here's where I wanna go. I wanna I want give you a little like a verse to put over your self-examination to free you to actually do it without fear of what you might find out. And it goes back from 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's a reminder of the gospel that, that Jesus is the only one that actually lived in pure allegiance to God. Jesus is the only one that didn't get corrupted by the shiny things of the world, that, that he did all of it right, and then Jesus did exactly what we were supposed to do, but then he went to a cross where he died in the place of all of us who are just trifle, or distracted by trifles. He did it for any that trust in him. And, and part of what this does is it allows us to say, okay, I am fully forgiven by the Father through Christ. I'm forgiven by what Christ has done, his righteousness in my place, his advocacy for me. Which, so I'm fully forgiven, which means I'm free for self-examination. I'm free to actually look at my life and say, where is it off? And we want to. I mean, this command is so kind. Look at what verse 17. God is actually, his commands are meant for our flourishing. Look at, look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's not saying the, the world is just bad. It's saying the world is an ultimate. It's not saying stuff is bad. It's just saying it's not permanent. Why, why would you give all of your affections and all of your allegiance and all of your loyalty to something that's not going to last? I love the book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Um, in it, he uses this, this, uh, this kind of image uh, of the dot and the line. He says, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? The dot is this existence, this 80 years, 85 years, 90 years, 70 years, whatever the Lord gives you, the dot, this world. The, the, the world right now, or you're living for the line, this never-ending line of eternity. And so he, he lays this out, and he makes the case throughout that, that living for the next world, it's not just right, and it's not just honoring to God. He's like, it's smart. He says, it's smart. Why? As this text says, because the world is passing away. And, and this isn't a new concept. I mean, this happens all over the place. Ma uh, Jesus talked about this all the time in, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, uh, verses, verses 9 and uh, 19 and following. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later on in Matthew, Jesus in, in Matthew 19, 29, he says that anyone who puts God first, anyone that's, that's given up homes and given up comforts and given up friends for God and for his kingdom, they're going to get back, he says, a hundredfold. Randy Alcorn makes this, he says, that's 10,000% return on your investment. He calls Jesus the greatest money manager in the world because he forecasts and foretells this is where to put your stuff because it will have a 10,000% return. The world's passing away. It's not bad. It's not bad. The world, there are parts that are corrupt. There are parts that are revised, but, but it's passing away. Why would we want to double down to invest all the things in something that is simply fading? Let's give you some quotes, some, some ones that, so I'll give you three different quotes that, that stir my heart to want to live for the world to come and not for this one. Randy Alcorn from Treasure Principle says this, whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Oh, it's a phenomenal line. John Wesley, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. A missionary who was martyred trying to reach an unreached people group, Jim Elliott says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Part of the kindness of verse 17 is saying you don't have to wonder how to live well. You don't have to wonder. You, d- you don't have to wonder. You don't have to mess this up. Uh, we get to avoid what John Owen calls living affections to dying things. We have to put all of our hope, all of our stock, all of our dreams, all of our joys, everything in this world, and we got to get as much out of it as we possibly can. So you don't have to do that because this world is passing away. Living for the, living like this doesn't just impact the future, though. One of the things that's really amazing, one of the kindnesses of a text like this is that it doesn't just impact the future, it actually truly changes our joy and our peace and our comfort, even right Now, I love this line from C.S. Lewis. He says this, he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. He's saying if you live for this world, you're gonna miss out on the world to come and this one, but if you live for the next one, you're gonna get this one too. I got this insight from Tim Keller. He said this, he asked, he says, what's the most um, typical phrase in the Bible for worry? Like, how is worry attached most often? He's, and and he, he gave this great insight. He says, it's the cares of the world. That's the thing that makes us worry the most. The riches and the pleasures and the concerns of this world, they, they continue to come in and they, and they distract us and they harm us and they, 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 um, they curb our affections for God and they, they make us anxious and worries and we, we, we kind of live in this world with like, have I gotten enough? If this world is it, have I maximized joy? Have I, have I secured everything I can? How do I know I've accumulated enough? Is it gonna be taken away from me? What am I gonna, we just live with this sort of worry. And we miss out, not just on eternal life, but the life that's right in front of us. 
Katie and I, when, when our kids were younger, like many families with younger kids, it's hard to get on dates. Um, you know, you're new in your career, you got less money, you got, it's hard to find sitters and all that stuff. And so when we got the opportunity to go out on a date, it was like, this better be the best date ever because we don't know if there's any more dates coming. We don't know when it's going to happen again. Let's, Katie, come on, let's go and enjoy each other. Let's go. And we just ruined the date. It's ruin it. We better have the best conversation with the best restaurant, the best table. And I am, a, I, am a, I am definitely a little bit out there. And so like I would ask like, could we change our table to that table? Could we actually, I'm not filling this table. Could we go over here? Because I'm like, I don't know when the next time I'm ever going to get to go out. This text is saying this world's passing away. You have an eternity. You're going to have an eternity. Jesus is building mansions for you. Enjoy your house, but it's not, the, it's, it's not long term. I love the way Peggy Noonan says it in in Forbes. She says this. She says, you can live as if there are two worlds. And therefore, you don't overworry. And you're not at all upset about being a nice person and finding out occasionally you get ripped off. And you're not that upset about giving your money away and finding you can't do everything you'd like to. A worldly person is uptight. A worldly person is concentrating on the material. A worldly person is concentrating on image and power, on chic, all the superficial things. Those are the important things. Here's what this is all saying. It says, to live well in this world, live most for the next one. So what John is trying to say. Is he's just simply put, he's just saying, if you want to live well now, live most for the next one. Live this world in light of eternity and you'll be doing well. Let's end with the urgency of this command. Look what the incentive is, but also what's at stake. This world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Raven Ness says it like this. He says, these three things in the world characterize what is at work in the world system in opposition to God. They are not passive, but aggressively seeking to allure the affections of everyone, including Christians. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Worldliness, says it like this. He says, every moment of every day we're making choices, whether we realize it or not, between love for a world that opposes God and love for the risen Christ. I make this point really simply, hopefully simply, and hopefully quickly. The good news is we don't have to wonder what the right choice is. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder about how to live well. Now, doing it can be hard. Doing it perfectly is impossible, and thanks be to God for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. But we can wage war against the flesh and the eyes and pride of our possessions and our status and our stuff by setting our eyes on eternity, setting our eyes on Jesus, setting our eyes on the love of God. What we'll get is eternity with the earth thrown in as a bonus. Last quote in a sermon of many quotes. Randy Alcorn says this. Five minutes after we die, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. But God has given us his word so that we don't have to wait to die to find out. And he's given us his spirit to empower us to live that way now. Thanks be to God. Those who live best in this world, live most for the next one. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a gift of a text. It confronts us and challenges us, but you're not, you're not depriving us of anything. You're actually inviting us to fuller joy. 
You're inviting us to, to a legacy that lasts. You're inviting us to a 10,000% return. You're inviting us to a calm and a, and a, and a, and a, and a comfort in this world even because this isn't it. You're freeing us to have good relationships, but they don't have to be ultimate. You're freeing us to have decent vacations, but they don't have to be ultimate. You're freeing us to enjoy food, but it doesn't have to be ultimate because all of these things will give way to the line of eternity and the joys that are with you and a new creation that never fades. Teach us this lesson. God, I need this lesson. I I, I know I don't know it as I want to. Teach us this lesson. Reorient our affections and our allegiances to you. Help us to see this from you as gift today. In Jesus' name, amen.